As was mentioned already this evening, how blessed and thankful we each can be for the opportunity that God has allowed us to enjoy yet this afternoon, to assemble and to gather, not for the purpose of any personal matter explicitly, but to lift high the banner of what His will is, and to worship and revere Him in the way that His Word directs us. As mentioned, we are thankful not only for the membership, but certainly the visitors who've come our way, and we hope that each of us can truly and honestly say it was good for us to have been here. It is true that as we come to this 52nd Sunday in the year 2014, the last Sunday of this calendar year, we arrive, of course, at our reading through the Scriptures at our last lesson in the entirety of this 104-lesson series. The, by far the longest series, I suppose, I have ever attempted. And as we get to this point, we have read through the entirety of the Bible. It is true that as we arrive at this next slide, somewhat of a quick summary, admittedly, it is true that the Bible has 1,189 chapters, and as of this coming Wednesday, we shall complete all of them. I chose the book of Malachi, then, in terms of that reading as the lesson to close this Sunday evening, the one that, of course, brings us to consider a lesson entitled, I Change Not. As you look at that slide, of course, it really is no great revelation to appreciate the fact that there is consistent and constant change all about us. Amazing, isn't it, that a little baby is born, pure and innocent, and of course our hope is healthy, but yet it isn't long before that little boy or girl grows into what seemingly is adolescence, and it isn't long thereafter a young adult, and soon a full adult. Where do the years go, and how does one even imagine the fullness of all those changes? At the workplace, a new administration takes over, and everything changes, it seems, at the drop of a hat. Our own federal government every four years or at most every eight years seems to change dramatically. We live in a constant sea of change. I would submit to you, though, the Word of God speaks to you and me about one who changes not. And oddly enough, that's the way. In many ways, the book of Malachi closes the Old Testament is a full and amazing reminder of that one that changes not. Let's turn our attention tonight reflecting on the book of Malachi and reminding ourselves about the one who in the midst of a sea of change nonetheless changes not. And may I suggest that kind of consideration can be an amazing basis and foundation, an anchor, if you please, to which to tie your life and mine. As always, we will reflect first on the nature of the book itself, placing it in its context, and in so doing, to prepare ourselves for a series of lessons based on that text of verse 6 of chapter 3. First, what about this book of Malachi? Its placement chronologically and historically within the context of the Old Testament. We, over the last several Sundays, either morning or evening, have been giving attention to the prophetical books starting with, with the book of Isaiah and commencing with and going all the way to the book of Malachi. The last 17 books of the Old Testament are books of prophecy. You and I have in fact looked many times throughout this series at lessons drawn from all of them. Sometimes those minor books in particular are not the first ones to which we turn for edification in Bible reading. But I hope we've been reminded that they are as inspired as all the others and their lessons are timely. Their messages are powerful, and their usefulness and interpretations are very, very significant. We'll find no less is true of Malachi tonight. 
the people of God went into Babylonian captivity because of their iniquities and their sins. God had had enough of their otherwise rebellion, and so off into captivity for 70 years they win. At the conclusion thereof, God allowed those that wished to do so to return under the decree of Cyrus. We studied that in the book of Ezra. The number that chose to return, we began to appreciate. They started to rebuild the temple, and their heart was directed toward that. But as soon as opposition met them, as soon as resistance came, they ceased in their efforts. They stopped building the temple. For 16 years, it laid there dormant, uncompleted, and unfinished. Finally, God stirred them up with the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, and again, they worked and completed that temple in a short amount of time. At that point, that brings us to appreciate the following. Once they returned and once they rebuilt the temple, they still needed to have their spirit stirred so that they would appreciate the fullness of God's will and respect that law of Moses as they should. Thus, we learn about the man known as Ezra. In 457 B.C., he led a second group back. Now, the temple had already been completed. His chore and his task was to stir them up so that they would have an appreciation deeply seated in a profound understanding of the pureness of God's law of Moses and that they were to adhere to it fully and entirely. In those intervening years, they had become to look upon it with too much trivialness. They didn't look upon it with the seriousness with which they should. You notice 12 years later, a third, a third group returned. This one was led by Nehemiah. He went back this time with the urgency of rebuilding that wall surrounding the city of Jerusalem to provide the stability, to provide the security that was needed. As you and I look at all three of them, into that last one now fits Malachi. The book of Malachi, as nearly as we're able to tell, was written contemporaneously in those days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Roughly 435 B.C., the last chronological book in the Old Testament group. Malachi addressed a group of people who needed to be reminded of some serious things, for they'd forgotten it. Although they'd finished the temple, and although they had been spurred onward by some work, their mind and attitude still was not as it should have been. We're going to highlight some of those failings in the lesson tonight and ask ourselves, could we be guilty of something comparable? You'll notice as you look near the bottom of that slide, the history of the Israelite people carrying us all through the Old Testament is a rather stirring history. And we see in their activities and sometimes in their failures the very things that in part can in one way or another be problems for us. These thoughts about Malachi help us now to see what are some specific things God through Malachi told these people. Remember, they had already gone back and they had rebuilt their temple. But look at some of their other present failures. Malachi chapter 3 verse number 7, God specifically told them, You have not kept my ordinances. They had gone back and endeavored to some degree, but they still were not obedient to His will. They had, been dis they had disobeyed Him and worried constantly in so doing. Beyond that, you'll notice, they had robbed God. Now, at this point, you might appreciate that the style of the book of Malachi is very unique. It is filled with questions and retorts. 
when they were told, will a man rob God? They had the nerve to ask, how have we robbed him? And God then told them, you have robbed me by not giving to me that which you were able to give. What I had blessed you with, you did not return to me, even a portion of it. They were selfishly looking upon their talents and their time and their capabilities, not divesting any of it for the service of the God of heaven. Beyond that, you'll notice, some of them, chapter 3, verse 14, even stated it was a vain thing to serve God. They could see no benefit in it. They could see no value to it. They considered it vain. As if that weren't enough, notice their language. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Malachi, some of them spoke against God. They accused Him. They blasphemy directed words toward Him. They questioned the nature of that which He had developed and done. As you and I give a quick thought to the history of the Old Testament and what they had seen and the leaders that they had enjoyed due to God's blessing, how could a people react like this? Look at some of the next things God accused them of. They wearied God. That might itself be an entire lesson at some future point. You and I know that God, by His nature, being infinite in so many ways, is not one who gets tired like you and I, but yet God is specifically in Malachi said, You have wearied me. God was tired of some things, and He reminded them in Malachi that He was tired of their words. By what they said, the way they said it, they actually wearied God. Notice specifically chapter 2, verse 17. As if all of that wasn't enough, when they did come together and undergo what they called worship. Chapter 1 of this book is a powerful discussion. In fact, a diatribe describing the unacceptability of their worship. May we never forget the fact that just because people come together and call it worship does not mean that it is acceptable. Isn't it true in light of that? Look at the last two. God directly said, you have profaned my ordinances. That word profane means, of course, to condemn in the sense of to bring aside from that which is the purity descriptive of it. They have profaned it. Finally, they dealt treacherously. Oddly enough, that statement is used in more than one way in chapter 2. On the one hand, they dealt treacherously with God. They did not keep their end of the promise, the bargain that they had made with Him. And not only that, they dealt treacherously with each other. I suppose being a neighbor in that day, one would have always had to watch one's back. They dealt treacherously with each other. We begin to see a people who not only weren't worshiping right, they weren't dealing with each other right, that on which they based their life was so much less than what it ought to have been. It is into that midst God sends Malachi, hopefully to correct them, to instruct them, to encourage them. As he did that, why not use then the remainder of our lesson tonight and look at several things that God did through Malachi tell them. Again, the title of the lesson, I Change Not. In the midst of Israel's changeability and in the midst of Israel's whimsicalness, we find a constant, steadfast, unchanging God. It's the very God of which we sang a moment ago, hold to God's unchanging hand. 
That adjective unchanging identifies the being, the Yahweh, the Jehovah God of heaven. And just as surely as he told those through Malachi, I change not. Why don't you and I then develop some concepts, some appreciations that quite frankly can be an amazingly strong anchor in the midst of a changing world. So often the human family turns its attention to whatever culturally and societally seems appropriate but in the midst of it all, God says, I do not change. Observation number one. We have almost the first statement in this book. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. One of the first lessons, one of the first concepts that God wished Israel to appreciate was this. I have loved you, saith the Lord. It is true, isn't it, that God had allowed them to go to captivity. He had allowed them to suffer beneath several foreign enemies, several foreign powers. All the while, they had suffered mightily due to their own sins and iniquities. More than once throughout the days of the Old Testament, their choices had been far less than what they ought to have been. And now we notice one of the first reminders that God wished them to never, ever forget was His unfailing and constant love. I have loved you. Now as this book rolls forward, they were about to be told a number of issues and problems, but nonetheless the reason for God's assertion of such was that in that love He wanted them to appreciate the blessings He wished them to know. Due to their failures, God was not going to bless them in the way He wished He could. We learned that in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It is for now, why don't we reflect a bit on this love of God for Israel and use it to prompt us to think about that love even in the modern day. They really were His chosen people, weren't they? In Deuteronomy 7, this very people, those that were descendants of Abraham through Jacob, those that had come out of Egyptian captivity, those that had received His law at Sinai, those that were thus promised a land of Canaan. They were His chosen people, and He affirmed to them, I did not select you because of your military might. I didn't select you because you were better than everyone else. I chose you. I chose you out of the love I have for you. And He knew that within them, they were ultimately thus to be a people out of whom the entirety of the human creation could be blessed. Suffice it to say, that love leads us to appreciate the parallel. God has a remarkable love for all of His human creatures, doesn't He? Consider just a sampling of some of the verses reminding us of that fact. You and I can appreciate perhaps the following said. Romans 5 verse number 8, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Question, who is a sinner? Romans 3.23 says we all are, and thus God's love poured forth to the fullness of His creation. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God doesn't wish any to be lost, but that all might come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reminds us of this consideration of our Heavenly Father. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The time came though it was somewhat over 400 years after the days of Malachi, Jesus the Christ was born into this world. And to the cross He went as a final demonstrated illustration 
of God's love for the human family. God told them through Malachi, I've loved you. And today the cross is a constant and unchanging theme of God's love. As you can see next on that slide, we are reminded in 1 John 4 verse 20, we love because He first loved us. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 informs us so interestingly about that the just died for the unjust. Jesus the Christ died for you and me. Isn't it amazing then in light of God's love for the entirety of the human family, there's though a very special observation centered on His love for His people. God does have a people today. It's His church. It's those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14. It's those who by virtue of, in fact, allowing Christ's blood to cleanse them, they are a part of His body. Being a part of that body, they are thus in position to appreciate that special name of Acts eleven twenty six. They're Christians. God's love for that body. Think about some of the ways in which it is so sweetly described. God will take that kingdom... He'll receive it from the very hands of His Son, 1 Corinthians. We learn chapter 15, verses 24 and following. When you and I think then about the church, we're blessed to be a part of it and consider the depth of God's love for you and me. His Son died that you and I might be able to live in the way we do. He died this church, that this church might be established. He died that you and I might have the hope of heaven. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge and the love of God. The nature of that love perhaps leads us to those final observations because notice in 1 John 5 verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. And you and I are the ones who in earnestness and in sincerity strive to obey and keep those commandments. And oh, what love of God is appreciated. Isn't it easy then to see that just like God told Malachi, I have loved you, may you and I never doubt, question, or forget that God's love is that full and that unchanging. This world often exhibits so little ultimately of that love of God. Men seemingly have no interest in Him. They turn their back upon the Son, upon the church, and upon all that is of sanctity related to it. But yet God's love, especially directed to that church, is something that truly will be only finally realized on that marvelous and grand morning of resurrection when it's that group that will be ushered into heaven forevermore. God's love. You'll notice following that though, without any reason to doubt it, what about another observation? And you and I hinted at this one earlier, but it certainly never should stray far from our thinking. At the top of that slide... I find it intriguing that the central theme utilized to start the book of Malachi is this. Immediately after highlighting his love for them, he brings to their attention some faults and failures relative to their worship. The human family for many, many years has labored under the illusion that anything that happens in the name of worship, surely God must accept as long as it's directed with some degree of honesty and some degree of earnestness and some degree of sincerity. May we ask, is that the way it should be viewed from the days of Malachi? Did God accept their worship just because they called it so? Consider these points with me. 
In Malachi 1 verse 6, they should have directed to God both honor and glory, and yet God says you haven't done that. They again had the nerve to ask, how have we failed? God said, because in your worship you did not worship according to the statutes that I've delivered. Doesn't that sound parallel to our day? Wouldn't it be imaginable that some would question, but God, how have we not served thee? And he could easily answer, because you did not follow the prescriptions and the demands that I gave. As you and I give thought to that attribute of worship, I would ask you to notice, God even says in verses 7 and following of Malachi 1, that in so doing you've despised me. You'll appreciate some of the specifics of that despisement. We won't read the bulk of chapter 1, but let me just call some of the verses to your attention. Verse number 8. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Here was a group of people who had been blessed by God to return from Babylonian captivity and to be blessed with the building of that temple. They are now roughly a hundred years past that time, and it appears that by attitude they were now as bad as they were before they ever had gone into captivity. They had the nerve to offer apparently the animals that were sick and lame and blind to God, hoping that He would accept it while they themselves enjoyed all the fruits of the fine animals. God says, offer it to the governor and see if he'll take it. You'll notice in the verses that follow, Verse number 12, But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. They were making statements, blasphemously so, about what was going on in worship, that which was being offered and the contemptible character of it. May I ask you to notice yet another verse. Verse number 13, Behold, what a weariness is it, some of them looked upon worship and said, This is boring. I'm tired of this. I need something more contemporary, something more upbeat and lively. Let's finish the verse. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought the offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. You can get the sense that there's a parallel conversation that seemingly is rampant in our day. We need worship that's more acceptable, contemporary, upbeat, and more meeting that which is society's present state. God says this is unscriptural and I will not accept it. God respects His will. He had told them exactly what He wanted. And in their failure, you'll notice verse number 10. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. They offered, but God didn't accept it. They worshiped, but God didn't take it. Today, isn't it still the case that worship that simply is called that doesn't mean that it is? And it doesn't mean that our lovely God of heaven accepts it. 
And so we have one final reminder in the days of the Old Testament that if worship isn't done in the way that God says it should be, you just as well close the doors and go home. You're getting just as much good done. Notice he says, close the doors of the temple. No sense of offering any offerings. May you and I today ever rest upon the premise of the purity that God has revealed and understand that as we live that way, worship is a meaningful exercise. Meaningful because God is honored. We are edified. And that which was done upholds the majesty and purity and beauty of that which is His heavenly revealed will. That kind of worship truly is a meaningful thing, isn't it? As you and I think about that, Jesus addressed it in the New Testament, didn't He, in Matthew 15. In verses 7 to 9 of that chapter, the very Son of God spoke about worship that was vain. And He highlighted even in the days of the Jews how very unacceptable and unfortunate such a thing is. In parallel, not much has changed in 20 centuries, has it? Surely you and I can then see in John 4, 24, the imperative that our Master delivered. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Two lessons and how timely they have been. You'll notice at the bottom, perhaps this is a perfect opportunity to appreciate the way to insert this next observation. As you and I read these four chapters of Malachi, we are reminded so greatly that God respects His law. He gave this people laws and judgments and statutes and He anticipated, yea, even demanded that they would obey them. I would ask you to notice in Malachi 4, verse number 4, nearly the last verse in the Old Testament. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. God told them, what I'm expecting of you is not something new. You've had it since the days of Sinai, centuries ago. And they wanted something new, something changed, something modern, and something up to date. But God was pleased with that which He delivered centuries earlier. Today, as you and I give thought to what they turned from, Malachi 3.7 again says, These are the very statutes they did not keep. Finally, we might appreciate a whole host of passages reminding us about the imperativeness of this law that we serve beneath today. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. The frightening character of a statement like that. Here were some under the impression that they knew the Lord, but He never knew them. Though they acted and did a number of things, perhaps what they thought appropriate in His name, He said, I never knew you. God respects His will. The sophistry and the philosophical considerations of you and me matter not at all in the halls of heaven. No wonder you notice in Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22, passages to which we refer this morning, we see one final time, blessed are they that do His commandments. Not my commandments, not yours, but His commandments. And in so doing, they have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city.
the pristine obedience to the commandments of God lead us to observation number four. We would have expected it, I suppose. All of these prophetical books, it seems, are like a lens casting the spotlight on Jesus the Christ. He was to come, the greatness of the law He would bring, the church He would found, and of course the hope of heaven that He would make possible. We find no less to be true in the book of Malachi. I selected just a few prophecies, easily bringing our attention to Jesus. Might I ask you to notice, one of the special features appearing in the book of Malachi is the statements about John the Baptist. Not only did the Old Testament prophesy about Jesus, it also prophesied about John the Immerser, John the Baptist. And maybe Malachi does a marvelous job. I would ask you to notice chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice that there was one described in that very verse as the messenger of the covenant. The one referenced as the Lord, but it says just prior to His coming, there would be a messenger. This passage is quoted in the New Testament and applied to John the Baptist. He was the one preparing the way for Jesus the Christ, and oh, how well He did His job. As Malachi spoke about Him, you might notice it says, Suddenly the Lord would come to His temple. Jesus did appear very, very soon after John the Baptist began His labors and His work. No wonder in light of that we could appreciate in chapter 4 verse 2 there is a very sweet description of Jesus. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Might I ask you to notice it's not spelled S-O-N, it's spelled S-U-N. Jesus is the Son, S-U-N of Righteousness, that bright and shining beacon bringing the great righteousness and the revelations of heaven to the human family. You'll notice it says He also will arise with healing in His wings. He can remove the sin and the shame from the lives of humanity. When they obey His will and His blood cleanses their sin, He can bring healing spiritually. And that kind of healing is so often referenced within the pages of the New Testament. No wonder in light of that, there is, of course, a, an appreciation of all of that that so easily parallels to today. Jesus, constancy, unchangeability. Didn't Jesus Himself, by way of description, find these words in Hebrews 13, 8? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. In the Revelation, He's described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. A full constancy in terms of all of time. Isn't that the source of hope as an anchor for the soul? And it's described that way in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. An anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Is He then the anchor of your soul and mine? Malachi looked forward to his coming, but he never lived long enough to see it. You and I live this side of Calvary. We live this side of those events in the New Testament. And you and I are blessed to be able to live tied to Christ. Are you and I tied to Him in faithfulness? Are we tied to Him in a way 
that brings us to appreciate the constancy when God can say, I change not. The technology that's around you and me seemingly changes with such rapidity. We were talking at the house only last night. Remember the days when there were no such thing as cell phones? Remember the days when there was no such thing as internet? I can remember it well. I remember when faculty members at colleges, few of them had computers in their offices and on their desks. Today, that seems unthinkable. Who knows if God allows the earth to stand, what 50 more years will bring, what new technology is there, but this much we know, God says, I change not. The temptations that surround man then will be temptations parallel to today. Point number five. The book of Malachi, fittingly enough, just as Revelation does in the New Testament, the book of Malachi brings before us this statement. It is so sweet that I would invite us to read it. It's near the close of Malachi chapter 3. Mention is made of a book of remembrance. Beginning in verse number 16, the inspired writer had these words to say. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. God's jewels. God's jewels. We notice here in the days of the Old Testament that reference was made to God's jewelry. But notice it wasn't diamonds or gold or rubies or emeralds. It was His people. His faithful servants, they shall be my jewels. And as God made that reference, He said, there's a book of remembrance. Now, those in that book are those that think on me and those that serve me, those that wear my name. Notice again the wording of verse number 16. The parallel to that thought is so easily understandable, isn't it? It's just surely as one can imagine this book of remembrance. We noted in the lesson this morning, the book of life, in which there are names of the faithful etched and written therein. That book referenced often in the pages of the Word of God. There's not only the text in Revelation, there's Philippians chapter 4. All of that reminding us about this book and what an amazing constancy is attached with it. Is my name in it? Is your name in it? Are you and I the jewels of God in this New Testament era? It is true as you close that and give thought to the book of life. What a fitting way to close this series on the Old Testament. God's jewels. They looked forward to the coming of the Christ. They looked forward to the one that would be the fulfillment of all the prophecies that we've seen concerning God's Messiah. You and I today are blessed that He's already come. His work of execution in terms of the church has been completed. You and I are now blessed to simply be parts in it and faithful at that. No wonder as we close Malachi, we notice the next book in the Bible is the book of Matthew. We turn the page from Old Testament to New. As we do that, why don't we close our series with one final brief set of reminders. 
we've reminded ourselves tonight about the days of Malachi and all that history that brought us to that point. But furthermore, we've appreciated several lessons centered around the thought of I change not. First, God's unfailing love for Israel emanated today in His love for His spiritual Israel, the church, Galatians 6 verse 16. Secondly, we highlighted the thought of the imperative need for scriptural worship because any worship that isn't is no more acceptable today than it was then. Malachi chapter 1, verses 7 and following. Our third lesson surrounded the topic of God's respect for His will and His law and that there is no compromise to it. Neither is that the case today. Lesson 4, observation 4 centered around the fact of Jesus Christ and the prophecy of Malachi directly pointing to the fact that the messenger would come and then suddenly the Lord would come to His temple. And as we turn the page to the book of Matthew, the messenger was there, John the Baptist, and suddenly the Lord came. Finally, lesson number five, the book of remembrance. Is your name in that book of remembrance? If it's not, it needs to be there. Everything has been made ready. The plan of salvation has been put in place. All that's necessary is for you and me to simply adhere to it, to follow and obey it. If tonight that's lacking in your life, why not correct that, that failing? The Son of God came, and in so doing that plan of salvation, believe with all of your heart that He is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then humbly be baptized. If we can assist you in that way, what a glorious day for you would be this 28th day of December, 2014. If you have begun that walk with Him but have not been faithful, come back to your first love tonight. The people of Israel were called back because they had failed, Malachi 3.7. But God wanted to bless them so much. And God wants to bless you as well, but He wants you to be faithfully at His side. And tonight, if we could pray for you and with you, to Him for, the, for, your, for your, your forgiveness, James 5, 16, we'd be happy to do it. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in one or the other of those ways, we would, we would urge you, we would implore you, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing.